your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. I am going to attempt, no promises today, to get through the rest of the Olivet Discourse today. Um, it is quite a challenging text, as I'm sure as you see the scripture reading, and if you've been listening, uh, the first part of this lesson was done before COVID hit. So if you have not heard this whole, particularly Mark 13, I would really encourage you to go back and pick up those sermons. Uh, they're very important to understand how this is in context. And even back a chapter or two, back into 11 and 12, and watch the flow of what's happening here. Uh, very important. I'll explain more just after we pray. Father, we thank you for our time to sing corporately. Uh, so many of us love to sing to you privately and pray and speak with you and read your word. But today, on Sundays, the first day of the week, marking the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you commanded us to gather together and corporately worship. That's what we've done here today, Lord. Though we're spread out from the worship center to overflow rooms to those who are at home watching, it is a corporate effort of worship for you. And Lord, it is easy to do. Those of us that have tasted your grace and know you and know what you've done, how you've rescued us from all the judgment that is due us. In fact, your son took that judgment in our place. It is easy for us to open our mouth and sing. And it's easy for us to hear the word of God taught because our Savior is glorious to us. So Lord, we want to thank you. Father, we thank you that you give us passages like the Olivet Discourse that are still passages that are to come, Lord. It is a warning, and yet it is also instruction for those times. Lord, help us handle it in context. Help us handle it the way you intended it to be taught. And yet let us learn. Let us learn of a gracious God who will not let his elect pass away. Even in those final days, he will gather them from every part of the world. He will proclaim his truth and set his kingdom up and these texts reveal those. And yet they're difficult, Lord, for us humans who have limited capacity to understand all of these future events. We pray that you would help us today as we look at these. Father, before we get into the word, we want to remember our missionaries around the world. We're reminded that many of them have suffered uh, greatly in their ministries from this. Particularly those in third world or those where government has even a stronger role, Lord. Many of them have suffered. They have not been with their churches. They've been kept separate, Lord. Many of their finances have suffered in difficult times, Lord. So we pray for the missionaries that we support and so many that, that you have sent out on the field. We pray for their favor, Lord. That you would meet their needs and you would give them ministry during these difficult times. We pray for the church around the world. Lord, we know that you do these things often to refine the church, to prove and show who really truly belongs to you. You show just a, a flare of your wrath to the world, what you're capable of doing, and yet you shower goodness day after day. But in amongst all that is your church. And so we pray for her, that you would be kind to her and you would give her favor wherever she is, Lord, so that she may be able to proclaim the glories of the one who called us out of darkness. That is our job here on this earth, Lord. So, Lord, let us do that with freedom. 
We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark 13 is this great passage of the Olivet Discourse. And as we study it, it's easy to get a little bit lost in what's happening. Uh, I will confess as you dump into this text and try to understand uh, such future tense and future things that are going to take place and try to figure out where they're going to happen and if they happened here or didn't happen there or so forth that you can get a little bit of lost in the forest, can't you? And so I want to remind you where Jesus is at and what's going on. He is on most likely Wednesday of the Passion Week. That means he is just probably now, as he finishes Mark chapter 13, he is probably a little more than 24 hours away from his death. This is all taking place in the last moments of his earthly ministry. But before that all takes place, we will see in the coming weeks, we will see Jesus being anointed most likely by Mary Magdalene, this woman possessed by demons and, and the difficulties that she went through. She owes all to Christ. We'll witness that in Mark. We'll also witness the last Passover meal the Lord shares with his disciples and how he introduces the new covenant. A new covenant. The old is is about to be ready and uh, to be completed. It's going to be done. There's no way he's going to have you coming through sacrificial works of animals or any of that. He is going to be the final lamb, and so he's going to introduce the new covenant, and he's going to introduce the table, the Lord's table, to his beloved disciples. He'll protect the denial of Peter. Peter will deny him. He'll fight and say he won't, but he will. And then we'll venture into the garden in, in such a blessed spot. I can't wait to get to this text where there we're with our Lord in this private conversation he has with the Father. And we'll, we'll be right in the middle of that as he sweats, uh, drops like blood as he speaks with his Father. We'll stand there in the garden as we study God's word and watch Judas and the temple police come and we'll watch him betray the one and only Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see him arrested. We'll see Peter deny him. We'll see an illegal Jewish trial begin. And it'll end with his appearance between, before Gentile royalty. And then finally, we'll see the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan, Jesus' death. Mm. It'll be challenging when we get to this text. You know, the last time you've ever just sat down and studied the death of Jesus Christ. It's gripping because we know why he's there. He's there ultimately because of the Father's sovereign plan, but because of our sins. That we know the plan, his death leads to his burial, his burial leads to his resurrection. And we will watch that as we finish out this book throughout the summer. Last week we took on verses 14 through 23 and now we start to move our way into the actual coming of Christ. And what we'll look at today, verses 24 and following, is that this paragraph portrays the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, him coming back to the earth, where he will establish his kingdom and set all things right. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in a language that you'll see today. It's very Old Testament. It's familiar to them. It's speaking from the prophets, from the Psalms. He's using terms that they would have known. But it's also a difficult passage. Many have wrestled with this passage. 
I would put myself in that as well. It's not easy to try to dissect this passage and understand it completely. But whether you take this um, figuratively or, or literally, which I think we should still take it literally, it is still a passage that takes some work. But the Old Testament and the New Testament have a certain language about it. Uh, they both speak of this massive, universal, catastrophic event that happens at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as you look at that, you begin to realize that there's a theme here. And, and I think the problem when we talk about end times is we can get lost in the catastrophic events. We can get lost in the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist. We can get lost in all the, the sun being blotted out and stars falling and all of that. But the real message is Christ. And I don't want you to miss that as we go through this. I get asked questions all the time on end time stuff. Most pastors do. We want to know, hey, give me the answers. <laughs> now, some of those are a little difficult to come, but here's what I will always tell you. End times are about Christ. And if you miss that, you'll never see what the Bible is teaching. You'll find yourself lost in a lot of charts and graphs and all kinds of things. In times is about our glorious Savior and him returning with power and authority with his holy angels in tow and him gathering the last of the elect, the last of the elect to himself. Well, I want to attempt to look at five thoughts this morning. We'll see how far we get here. Um, but first, we'll look at this first thought, the return of the glorious Son of Man, verses 24 through 27. Look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, you see me highlight that with my voice, two very important demonstrative pronouns. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth his angels and he will gather together his elect from the four winds from the furthest end of the earth to the furthest end of heaven. Well, notice how this section transitions with a, with a somewhat adversive uh, conjunction. It's not a strong adversive conjunction, but it's a conjunction that helps you understand that there is a transition taking place. There's a new phase here. There's a new picture of end times. And what it's doing here is it's carrying a clear contrast between the false Christ that he's just spoke about in the last verses that we studied last week. There's this false Christ that arises who makes himself out to be God and so forth. It's contrasting that with a true Christ and for those who believe in the true Christ. And so that, that little conjunction right there, those of us that study for a living, we really do believe in, in using Greek and Hebrew, and that's a very important tour because it really helps us understand the changes of the moods that go on in the text. And so he's trying to let us know there's something going on here. There's a shift of the view here. It's been looking at this false, these false Christs, these antichrists, and now the coming Christ, the true one. He says, in those days after the tribulation, uh, this statement helps you understand the close connection between verses 14 and 23. Matthew uses the word immediately. So immediately following these events of verses 14 through 23, this is gonna take place. 
Now, I already pointed this out that, that notice those little, what we call um, demonstrative pronouns or, or it, some of our Greek language, they're predictive pronouns. Predictive pronouns. Those and that. Look at that phrase. In those days after that tribulation. See, these pronouns, they, what they do is they view an unparalleled tribulation that, that has just been described. Remember, it's, it's like nothing's ever been seen. Verse 19 says, nothing like it's ever been on the earth. And so he's saying after those and that time, he's really trying to highlight that. But it gives the understanding that they're far off. They're still, they're still not here. It's another age. It's something that Jesus is speaking about, an event to come. Now he says upon that, that even grabs your attention more, that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Uh, these, are, these are universal signs that proclaim the end is near. Many, many read this, and again, if you read lots of people's views on this, they'll, they'll say, well, how can this be? This has to be completely figurative. If the sun goes out or the moon goes out, you know, how, how would the world go? How would the tides go? How, how will the world not freeze to death and so forth? Um, but, but certainly, it's, it's to be understood. Think about what's going on. Everywhere, the Bible says in our last text, that there's not a spot on earth that has not seen the tribulation affect it. You have, you have the earth crust opening up, earthquakes, all kinds of things happening. If you've ever been, anybody, you've been at a fire or a forest fire, and those who were around here for a while remember back here, it, it'll block out the sun. We've personally fought fires on our ranch, and, and, it's, and it can be so dark in there you can't almost see. And so certainly there, there is some figurative thinking here at, at some level, but, but there's a reality to this. The whole world is, is probably darkened in smoke and ash and all kinds of things going on. The, the aspect of what you see in these, these preceding verses, uh, it's very difficult to get our mind, especially when he says, such as no one has ever seen. So these are dark times, aren't they? When Mount St. Helens which was a great example for creationists to study. When it blew, um, of course, that's on the West Coast, so we were probably a little more involved with it out there when we were out there. Um, those who were studying that, when those who were caught in it said it was like the black of blackness in it. The sun was completely blackened out. For days in town, you could not get around through the ash and all the, the smoke and all the things that were going on unless you had your headlights on and you're fighting the ash and windshield wipers. Or, it, it was just dark. And some of the videos of that are just amazing. This is one, and we were just drove by Mount St. Helens the other day, uh, one little teeny mountain in all of this world. Think about all of the mountain ranges and all the volcanoes, all opening up and, and a third of the world's population dying, the Bible says in Revelation 6 through 16. It's going to be dark. And look, a cursory study of Revelation 6 through 16 helps you understand there's not a spot on earth not, not subject to this. If we interpret this universal catastrophic event with a literal interpretation, the language really speaks for itself. It's going to be dark, it's going to be difficult. And when the sign of Jesus' coming is given, it will defy scientists and astrologers and all those who think they have everything figured out. They try to tell us we're in this warming and we're in this cooling and we're this and that. Boy, uh, 
<laughs> if you're an environmentalist on that day, you're going to have to quit. Because it's a mess. Verse 25, the Bible says the stars will be falling from heaven. This is an amazing statement, isn't it? Again, this is a predictive future tense in this. It stresses the duration of the event. It's going on for a little while, star after star. You go, well, stars, well, look, uh, meteor showers. And we've had some meteors hit our earth, haven't we? If you've ever been out in Nevada or seen some of these spots where they hit, the, you would not want to be there. <laughs> and, and the Bible here is saying repeatedly, the language is that there's a continual duration of these stars, these meteors, this burning hot rocks hitting our earth. It's going to be tough. And then it makes a statement. Notice it says the powers that are in heaven will be shaken. Well, the word shaken is um, used often in the Bible to describe earthquakes. Uh, it's, it's a fairly common word. Um, and, and here gives the idea of a great convulsion in the, in the heavenly world. Something like an earthquake going off in the heavens is the way some have translated it. But could this statement be talking about Satan and his followers? I, 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 just this week, as I studied this, I've kind of moved my view that maybe, just possibly, I kind of think, I think I think, <laughs> that's where your views and end times work sometimes, um, that this might be talking about Satan. Let me see if I can prove this to you. The word power is often associated with Satan. Prince of power. Powers and dominions. New Testament uses these words when it speaks of Satan and his demons. And Satan's powers are great in comparison to man, but they don't hand a, hold a candle to God. And so when you think about this, the powers in heaven, if it is speaking of Satan and his followers, are shaken, I want to just remind you of what happened in time. Think about the Red Sea. Just, let's start there. We were just in Exodus, so that came to mind. Satan hates God. He opposes all that, but he is limited, isn't he? I thought about this this week. God spreads the Red Sea out, takes his nation through it, brings them to the other side, invites the <laughs> Egyptians in, and then washes them over and they're dead. Why didn't Satan stop that? Because he can't. He can't. And I'll guarantee you this. Think about this. He was shaken at that. He had Pharaoh in his grip. Pharaoh was doing his will. He had that, but he cannot stop God when God reacts. Now, now think, think about several other opportunities. Um, what about Jesus' ministry? He, he, here's these people, people after person, person after person keeps coming, boys, girls, um, men, women, all coming to Jesus, demon-possessed, and they can't stand against Christ. They're in the control of Satan, they're in control of his forces, they're in control of his powers, and when they get up against the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan can't stop it. Doesn't matter if there's legions or there's one, he says, come out, and they come out. And Satan stands there. You gotta think about this. He's powerless against Christ. He's powerless against an almighty God. And so could it be that, and then think about this. And we could go on this forever, I gotta be careful because I can't get through this. Think about the resurrection. If he can stop Jesus from coming out of that grave, that death is meaningless, that burial is meaningless, if he can stop him from being resurrected, if he can somehow seal that tomb, if he can get guards to stay awake, if he can stop him from coming out of that, nobody gets saved. He couldn't do anything. 
See, I think, I think possibly Jesus said the power and authority of Satan and all of his kingdom and all of his dark princes and all the things that he controls will be shaken when Jesus comes. And could it be, could it be that this is an effect of his kingdom that is gonna fall and he knows it? Because as we study eschatology, the son comes back He rules and reigns and he tosses him in hell. And he binds him there for a thousand years. I think he's shaking in his boots. I think Jesus here just a day, a day and a half before his death is shooting an arrow across the bow of Satan's boat saying, you are powerless. You will shake in my presence someday. Back off. It could be true. Then he says, and this is a beautiful statement. Look in your text. Then they will see the Son of Man. Oh, what a precious text this is. Particularly if you've gone through those days and that tribulation. If you've been in this time, if you've seen the earth come undone, you've seen a a third of the the world's population die, you've seen the fleeing and running to the hills as we looked at last week, then they will see the Son of Man. I don't think we can quite get our minds around the beauty of that in this desperate time. Notice the word then, it it points to this universal event, this happening, this is this being described, this is going to take place. And then notice that it says, they will see. Why doesn't it say you will see? And this has been my point, particularly last week in this, is that this is looking forward to a different generation, a generation that will not fail, but a further generation. And I think it clearly denotes that those living on the earth after this great tribulation, this great time, where the world is shaken to its core and Satan is shaken, that they will see the very coming of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. He didn't say you will see, he said they will see. Again, the language helps us understand verse 30 when we'll get there in just a few moments that this generation will not pass away. It's been a very difficult passage. Many have stumbled over that passage. We'll look at that more. He calls himself the son of man. This is a great term. The returning one is identifying himself as the son of man, which the disciples would know immediately he's talking about himself. There would have been no doubt. They'd go, you're talking about you. That's the only title that's ever been given is you. You're the son of man. Throughout his ministry, Jesus used this title to refer to himself. And even further, and again, time limits us. If you want to jump in one of our seminary classes on eschatology, I would really invite you to do that. I think Pastor Jason's teaching that, right? Uh, Coming this fall. Um, Because we get in way more depth. But, oh, we don't have time. But, boy, go read Daniel 7. Does Daniel 7 fit like a glove in this section? There it speaks about the Antichrist and his false prophets who are horns and they're raising up and they're speaking and making themselves out to be God and, and so forth. And then the Ancient of Days assembles and, the, and those around the throne assemble and there's this great praise and then he sends the Son of Man to come and set the record straight. Oh, Daniel 7 fits perfect in here. So here's the disciples hearing this term, Son of Man, they're going, I don't know what that passage means, but that's what it says. Because remember, they're still thinking kingdom, left, right. We don't even know he's dying here in 24 hours. Remember where they're at in this. So there's further education that's going to come for them. Now, 
I love the term son of man. This is what Jesus calls himself. He says, I, I, he calls himself the son of man. I did not come to be served, but to serve, to make my life a ransom. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He says, the son of man must be delivered over to sinful men and be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And so this is a term that is, is precious to believers, Son of man. He doesn't call himself the son of God, which he is, right? But he's son of man. He's, he's, he's working with us, isn't it? He? He's letting us know, I am, I'm you. I'm with you. I've taken on humanity. I stand in your place. I represent you. I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to bring you to the Father. Oh, that term, uh, Christian, you need to love that term, son of man. That's who's coming back. That's the one that they'll see in the clouds as he returns Notice in the clouds with great power and glory, the text says, Matthew says, in the clouds of heaven. Isn't that interesting? First, I think it pictures Jesus in actual returning. There's a lot of people, well, will he really come back? Well, then you gotta think he's a liar because he says he's coming. He's coming. Second, his personal return to the earth is among clouds, the text says. And third, apparently, Jesus is not coming in natural clouds, but a cloud of divine splendor that reveals his presence. Well, how do you know that? Well, one, Matthew uses his terms of clouds of heaven. You go, well, isn't that the heavens, maybe the, the first heavens? Well, certainly. But as we study the text, it's going to be pretty dark when he shows up. <laughs> right? It's a mess. The world's coming apart. And then let's think about this. How did he lead the people in Exodus? Oh, with a cloud, didn't he? And his presence was in that cloud. And he led them by day in a cloud and a pillar by fire at night. Doesn't this make sense? Connect him to this Old Testament God that they believed in and followed through the desert. And he, and he was there leading them. There's a real connection here. And I think it's that same glorious uh, revealing cloud of God as he comes down an amazing thing. Psalm says this about him. Psalms 97 too. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and judge, uh, justice are the foundation of his throne. So often when you study there's this cloud and, and it's, it's got to be his, his essence, his uh, aroma of his glory. And what a connection as you think. This is a Jewish passage and, and most of that elect that he's going to gather are most likely Jews that he brings to himself at the end. Not that there are not tribulation saints, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But here he's coming after them, and boy, they will look upon the one whom they pierced. They will see his glory in that cloud as he, as he had led them through the wilderness. Now, notice this is all in display of his great power and glory, which he alone possesses. So this is, also connects us to the ability for him to exercise this divine authority. So he says he's just not going to show up like, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm here. He's coming with divine power and authority. And, and he has the right to do that. The Father has given it all to him. Now then notice and it says he brings forth his angels. He sends forth his angels. This is this ecclesiological sequence. Then the next thing is his angels are coming too. They're there. Uh, some say, well, angels are often the term we get for messenger, which is very true, and sometimes it can be a human messenger. Um, but here it seems that these are angels. I think it's clear that these are heavenly beings that are coming with him. 
And you think about, well, how many are there? Well, you read a passage like uh, Revelation 5.11, it says there's myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. It's a Greek term for just uncountable. <laughs> there's a lot of angels coming with him. And think about this. When you, talk, when you see what God does to the Assyrians in the Old Testament, one angel wipes out 185,000 soldiers in one night. He's bringing myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, right? Satan fell. He took a third of the angels. There's two-thirds of them coming with him. Oh, this is going to be a display of his glory. I hope you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. You do not want to be on the other side of this. You do not want to be on the judgment side of the Son of Man. Notice also that the Bible says that he will gather together his elect from the four winds. What a beautiful text this is. This is the third mention of gathering the elect. Verses 20, 22, and now 27. He keeps talking about gathering the elect. He loses none of them. We said this last week. All that the Father gives me, I will lose none. Even in the most difficult situations that the earth is going through, he will lose none. His elect are those he has chosen. He owns them. He's established them as his, and he comes to gather them. Notice it, gather together. It means there's a central point. He's going to gather them, and I think he's just going to gather them to himself. He's going to bring them from all directions. A fascinating term from the four winds. Um, the Bible knows that God created this beautiful globe that we live on, and he, and he uses winds, and there's, we know the wind comes from what? It comes from the east, the west, the north, the south. So, he's, so it's, just a, it's just a very simple statement of saying, it doesn't matter where you're at on this world, if you are of the elect of God during this time, after this time of tribulation, he will find you and gather you. It's a promise. And then he says this, from the furthest ends of the world to the furthest ends of heaven, it's an appositional restatement, um, the Greek calls this. It, it just simply means that he wants to put greater influence that there's no place, no remote place in the world, no, no one in the deepest, darkest jungle who knows Christ will he miss. He will gather them. It's from one extreme of the earth to the heavens, meaning where the heavens and earth meet, as far as the eye can see, no matter where you're at, he will gather them. It carries this idea that he will not miss anyone. Interesting, though, it is not our Lord's intention to give a complete picture of end times here. So there's no mention of the non-elect in this text. As I mentioned last week, the view of the church is not in this text. Because the church is not even birthed yet, right? We talked about that. Disciples have, have no spirit dwelling within them to, to tell them about rapture and church and, and all of that would be so confusing as they're still thinking, uh, who gets to sit on the left and the right? They do not, do not know he is going to die in a little over 24 hours for their souls. They do not understand that. So our gracious God does not enter in everything of end times into this text. And so we must be careful not to read these things in. So there's no picture of a raptured church, but God is gathering the last generation of the elect. I think that's fascinating to me. I don't know who it'll be. Only God knows, but the last generation of elect will be gathered here. Well, I got several emails this week um, after last week's sermon, which you tend to do. Um, uh, well, what, where are we? What, is there, what do you believe in? Where, where's the church? I know it's not in the text, but where is it? Well, for me, and, and this has been years of studying, wrestling, having dear friends on different views, I, I have landed personally that God has already taken the church, the bride, out. 
He's, he's removed them. And there's several views of that. There's, there's a pre-trib that before all this starts, he removes and gathers. There's, there's a mid-trib or a, or a pre-wrath. Sometimes you hear it this way that God removes them. And there's a post-trib. Even at the end of all of this, he gathers his elect and then brings them back to the earth. And you say, Scott, why do you hold that position? Well, I, one, again, I don't want to get too far off this text, but I believe the Bible teaches that. And there are several reasons. Um, one is I believe in the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it's uniquely special to him. I would do everything in my power to protect my bride. If I can keep Gina from suffering, I will do everything possible to keep her from suffering. And this is what God has done mostly through time. I think sometimes when we study church history, we highlight times, you know, early, the first couple centuries was very difficult on the church. But then there was, there was centuries of rest. Constantine brought rest to the church. And we don't see anything, really, difficulties. I mean, there's always problems, right? But then till we get into the dark ages and then finally to the Reformation, then we start to see the church fall into persecution again. But then we go from great times of, of time where the church around the world does not suffer collectively. And sure, there's missionaries being beheaded and dying for the faith in different places, but the majority of the bride is always protected. This is what God does. He's gracious to his bride. And think about you husbands, what would you do for your bride? How much suffering would you allow if you had the possibility? And so the bride, the study of the bride helps my end time thinking. Is also, I, what really influences me, is God's promises in the Old Testament. You know, almost a third of the Old Testament deals with God's reinstating, coming back for a remnant of the Jews. And somehow, many in the church today, and I'm just not in that camp, have somehow spiritualized that all and made the church now the new Israel. And all those promises that are in the Old Testament given strictly to the sons of Abraham, to that group, now somehow get over to the church. And again, these are good men. I love them. I've ministered with them before. But I just can't get there. The promises of, of the nation. And, 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 and there's a remnant that he comes. And Zechariah just is such a beautiful text. Chapter 10 through 12. This third that has survived. Two thirds have been wiped out. This third is left. And in this time. We looked at this briefly last week. And, and God rescues them. And he opens their minds and hearts. And they look upon the one they pierced. Is the language. The Jews. Who put Christ to death. Reject him as Messiah. That remnant looks upon him and believes in him. God grants them faith. And so, listen, I hold to my views because I think it's going to be the most greatest demonstration of God's grace corporately and universally when he collects a bunch of people who have rejected him for thousands of years. I think it's going to be marvelous. And so, there's more. You can deal with the spirit going out of the world. There's, there's, there's lots of issues that kind of push me towards that and yet there are people probably even in this room and people who attend Riverbend have some different views and that's okay that's okay we get together and I've actually go to lunch with them and we have some really wonderful conversations uh, about our views but it's cordial Christ is our theme and we love to discuss these things but I don't think the church is here in Acts 13 after all my years of study and digging and asking I don't think the church is here I think these are Jews and tribulation saints. 
And you never know when this begins. But maybe someone who heard the gospel here is, is made aware and God opens his mind or her mind to him and is part of this elect in the end times. This is why we continue to worship. Second thought. And we're going to have to move. Number two. A biblical worldview creates biblical awareness. Look at verses 28 through 29. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branches have already become tender and puts forth the leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happen, happening, recognize that it is near right at the door. Having brought the end time picture to a climax here, now Jesus concludes this instruction of the Olivet Discourse with an exhortation. And I love this. I, I love it when the Lord uses uh, creation to teach an example. Old cowboy loves to think that way and see things and equate things. And this is what our Lord does. I'm not sure there was a fig tree close by. Um, I think he's on the Mount of Olives. Certainly there could have been. Um, but it sounds like there's probably olive trees there. But, but Jesus has done this before. He's used a fig tree. And often, often in his example of Israel. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that here because Luke says, and all trees. So he says, examine the fig tree and all trees. Luke add that. But here he says to learn. It's an imperative. You need to learn here. He says, when these branches have become tender and put forth their leaves, you know it's summer. So you know, those of us that have a little bit of horticultural in us and we like flowers and plants and trees and, and like to grow things, you know when the trees start going. Now, in Florida, it's a little difficult here. It's green all the time, and it seems like I have to mow my lawn 12 months of a year. Now, in the high country, where we, where we come from, I mean, when, when spring starts to come, it's a great day. <laughs> Grass starts poking through the snow, you know, and buds start on trees. I mean, it is really cool. And the sap, you know, the sap is moving up through the tree, and these young shoots are starting to take place, and the trees starting to bloom, and you just know, hey, finally, we're going to get out of this deep freeze. And the warm sun is going to come. Now you know why I moved to Florida. Uh, <laughs> we got tired of those long winters. We're here because God wants us. But, uh, and we enjoy playing golf in December. Uh, <laughs> but you can see this. And Jesus is using this great, this great teaching here. In fig, fig trees, you know they bloom late, right? You can have a lot of trees. The fig will go very, very late. And so, especially in the ancient world, in the Middle East, you can see this happening. And, and summer's right behind it. And then he says, even so, you too. So Jesus is making an analogy. Be careful. Make a careful observation. Look at the creative world. It'll teach you. And, and this will help you understand these moral implications of this crucial world events that are happening here. Now, then I notice he calls, he says to you, he, he's contrasting people, other people who do not believe in God's word against believers who can discern the truth from God's word. He goes, discern. Just like you can look that summer's coming, discern God's word. He says, and when you see these things happening, well, again, this can't be referring to the coming of Christ in, in 24 and 27. It must be talking about verses 5 through 23 when you start to see the birth pains. When you start to see events happening, know that this is coming. And so God's word is leaving a detailed instruction for tribulation saints to understand the reason for the end times. Now, recognize that it's near. It's right at the door. It's just when the Antichrist arises and he, and he takes power and he attempts to establish himself as God, Christ is on the doorstep. He will not let that take place for long. And when that takes place, the king will return. Third thought, God's word in the final generation of believers will persevere. 
God's word in the final generation of believers will persevere. Look at 30 and 31 with me. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The Bible, the word of God, will not be destroyed. The truth of God's word will not fail. And that's what's happening. Remember, these, these disciples here have come out of the temple with him. He's talked about, uh, he's taken on the four challenges from the religious leaders in, in 12, chapter 12. They just, in 11 and 12, they're coming at him. And then he takes them and shows them the widow and her might and all of that. And then they walk out of the, they walk out of, um, the temple and they go, oh, Jesus, look how glorious our temple is. And Jesus says, yeah, there's a day coming that a stone will be left. And then they finally start asking him questions. When will these things take place? And so remember, Jesus is answering that question. That's the original question in chapter four. And so he says, in a generation, in the last generation of the elect, that's what he's taken. This is when this is all gonna take place. And, and they may have said, well, how long will it last? And Jesus said in verse 20, I'll shorten the days, otherwise they won't survive. And then they may say, well, tell us again when these things will take place. And in verse 30 and 31, he'll say, nobody knows, only the Father. And so you see what he's starting to do. Now, here's a verse that many people stumble over, and I'll have to admit, it's a very difficult verse when you first read it. It says, the genera- this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is why there are many, or at least a good handful of people, believe 70 AD is the text here. But let's look at it a little closer. There's a double negative here in the Greek, and it means there's a strong statement. And it turns, and it's pointing out these things. These things, there's a future tense to these. Whenever these things take place, this generation will not pass away. This is the idea here. But how do you know that? Because the word generation, you think you have to go back and understand what that word means. And when you dissect that word, it means family. It means descendant. It means one who comes from a common ancestor. It speaks of a race of people. It denotes those who are living in a certain region sometimes or are people that are gathered together. Now, as noted last week, the disciples' generation saw the destruction of Jerusalem. So you'll say, well, could this be Jerusalem? Well, as we looked at, there's so many events that took place that did not fulfill these commands, these teaching in 70 AD. In fact, I was talking with Brian Sheely about this, and he went in his office and was reading Josephus on it, and he came back and said, you know, Josephus marks this time, 70 AD. And he said, the people were not streaming out of Jerusalem. They were actually streaming into Jerusalem. And Josephus records that. So again, I think it's just more evidence that this, he's not talking about 78. As difficult as 70 AD was and tragic as it was for the Jewish nation, I don't believe this is pointing to that. So what do we do with this word? Well, many explanations have been given about this generation shall not pass away. Um, and many people believe that Jesus is, is speaking about Jews and the type of Jews. Particularly, here's what a lot of people believe. They say, well, this type of uh, people who um, oppose Christ, who reject the Messiah, these people will not pass away. And there's a lot of good people that actually hold to that view. That there's this constant threat to the followers of Jesus Christ all the way to the end time of people who reject Jesus as Messiah, and of course that might be true. They believe that Jesus is speaking about a perpetual evil against the Son of Man and his followers. Then you get to others. Um, one of my favorite dead guys is J.C. Ryle. 
Um, I like J.C. Ryle. I think he was a great pastor and preacher. He had a view that held to the preservation of the Jewish race. Now, I don't agree with J.C. on this, but, but I, I see where he's going. And, he, and what he does is he, he looks at the, the fact of history. He, he, he basically holds to some passages that says that Israel shall not pass away until these things are completed. And so what this view says is ever since Genesis chapter 12, the nation of Israel has been attacked by Satan and people. And it's true. I mean, it is not hard to study history. And look, we marvel at the miraculous preservation of this nation. And for the majority of their existence, they have been well at a homeland. They've been driven to every part of the world. They're despised, they're hated and persecuted. Even today, Iran comes out and says, we'll drive them into the sea. That's their goal. They're on a postage stamp right now. I mean, and yet they're just hated. And so many believe that that's what this generation is speaking about, that God won't let the Jews be extinguished. However, I think both views disregard the thought that the words of Jesus are a definite time limit to them. There's the this generation, these things. There's a time limit there. So I think this is what we, I, this is how I interpret the text. I think it's best to preserve the natural meaning of this generation. It's denoting a bunch of people who are living at a given time. And in light of the context of this and, and the fact that 70 AD could not fulfill this text, we accept the view that there's reference to a future group of people who live in a turbulent, wicked time that are generations of believers who will see the fulfillments of this event. So he's saying this generation. Remember back in a couple verses ago, he says, they will see the Son of Man? So there's a tie. These, These pronouns and these demonstrative, predictive future tense are pointing towards that. And so I think he's speaking about those people. And I think it's a great promise. You're not going to be lost. That final generation, and, 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 and here's how I look at this. There's going to be a final generation. They'll have the word of God because the Bible says that the word of God will not pass away. They'll have it. They'll read this text and they'll find assurance that God will not abandon them. That he's coming back for them. We believe in a grammatical, historical, literal interpretation of the Bible. That's what holds me. That's why I keep interpreting the text. I hold to that. So I don't let too much figurative language, although there is figurative language in the Bible, or spiritualizing is probably the better word to, tr- to take my interpretation. So that's what we teach in the seminary. Guys, gals, we believe in a literal, grammatical, and historical interpretation of the Bible. So we look at grammar, and grammar tells us the Bible gave us words. God put, taught us to speak and to write down things so we can understand what the Bible means. There's a literal meaning. We try to come to the literal understanding of something instead of just spiritualizing because you may think, this group over here may think something if you spiritualize it, and you may spiritualize it another way and you another way. Well, what's the answer? Well, literal has to be the key here. So we hold to that, all right? Enough of your seminary class. Look at verse 31. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What a great statement. The Lord's highlighting the clarity of his prophetic promise here by telling his disciples and telling those who will read this, heaven and earth may pass away, and it certainly is going to, but the word of God won't. And, and Peter highlights this. We don't have time to look at it, but you can look at it later. Second Peter chapter 10. You want to talk about the Big Bang Theory? Go to verses 10, 11, and 12, and wow, the earth, boom, melts away. 
but the word of God will not. And so here the Bible, Jesus is reminding us that the world is temporary. That's a good lesson. The world is temporary. But his word is infallible. And even in the great final judgment of God in Revelations 20 and and there where he judges people and he puts those on his left and separates and judges them according to their deeds. The Bible says that he, uh, John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whom the presence of earth and heaven fled, uh, fled away and there was no place for them. And so this is consistent language with the apostles. After they heard this and they received the spirit and they understand the birth of the church and understood those things, they began to write the exact same language. You can follow it throughout the scriptures. But notice that Jesus is contrasting this temporary world with his word that won't pass away. And I love this. Jesus says in John 10, 35, my word shall never be broken. He tells, Psalmist tells us that it endures forever. Jesus, the night before his death in his high priestly prayer that we'll see in John 17, 7, says his word is truth. So the word of God proclaims, listen to this, proclaims the end from the beginning. Because Jesus says, I am the end to the beginning, right? And so it proclaims that to us so he is not changing. And I think this is a great comforting. It's a declaration of comfort. Listen, this generation is going to go through some difficult times. But even though the heavens and earth will fade away, you won't. What a comforting statement. Four, the submission of Christ and a cause for alertness. A submission to Christ. And a cause for learning. Let's look at verse 32. It says, but on that day or hour, no one knows. Well, here's some verses that others will stumble over as well. And they are difficult. Well, the precise time of this event, of the coming of the Son of Man, are hidden from all but the Father. And Jesus is making it clear that the chronological order of the return of the King is not to be determined. And yet, <laughs> what do people do? You know, what is it, something in 88 or, you know, and so, you know, all these guys keep coming up with, you know, we've done the calculations and he's coming back, you know, March. What, uh, uh. The Bible says, forget it. Just start watching for the signs. Not even the angels in heaven know. They're, again, are people, look at this. And, but the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12, the angels long to look into this mystery of grace and salvation and, and the rescue of these saints. But then he says, and this is where it gets difficult, right? Nor the son. Nor the son. You know, Arius, uh, who was the um, great problem in the early church where he denounced the deity of Christ. And, of course, they went through all of the, uh, of the um, councils and they ended up putting him out of the church. He ended up in North Africa and his followers began to believe the same thing. And eventually uh, the Muslim movement that comes out of all of that long history of it. This was one of the verses that he held to. Well, see, he's not God because he doesn't know. Not even the son knows. And so there's a constant tack using this that Christ is not deity. And down through the church aid, they've battled this. But think about this. I, I accept this. And, and Jesus accepts the limitation upon his knowledge. Does not rob him of his deity. It's a mark of his humanity. And we see our Lord do that often. Where he, he steps back into his full humanity and lives this life. Right? And we've seen that throughout the book of Mark. And only here in the book of Mark does Jesus use the title the Son rather than the Son of Man. 
So he's speaking about himself, and what Jesus is doing here is placing himself in the submission of the Father and is pointing to his awareness of the unique limitations that he has accepted in this life. Look, he's got to die. That's a huge limitation. And so he says at this point, in this humanity, I don't know what he's doing. Now listen, brothers and sisters, all that changes. Acts chapter 1, verse 7 He, Jesus, says, it is not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So never again do we hear Jesus speak this way. In fact, the Bible says, and Jesus himself says, after his resurrection, the Father has given me all authority over everything. So in his humanity, he submitted to the Father, even to the point to say, I don't know in my humanity when these take place. It's a great teaching. Don't let that trip you up. Our Lord was fully man, and if he's not fully man, we all go to hell. Because we don't have a representative. We don't have a fully man that dies on a cross for us. One that suffers in all ways and tempted in all ways. Don't you think suffering of not knowing something is difficult? Jesus put himself under that to suffer. And yet, at that resurrection, he is given authority over all things. And never again do we see that language about Christ not knowing ever come about. And another thing, when you start to think about this, it's good, it's useful to to his people to not know the end. What if you knew the end? How would you abuse that? Well, first of all, you wouldn't live by faith. Right? You go, you know, 8 and 80 or whatever that term was they were using back then. I'm just going to live like a carnal person. And then just about the time before all this happens, I'm going to start walking with God. That means you really don't have faith, do you? That means you're just playing a game. Ooh. Am I speaking anybody's struggle or language in here right now? I have talked to countless people through the years of ministry that said, well, I know God's gracious. I'll get my act together in time. Ooh, there's a bus waiting for you out front. I mean, you're testing God. You have no idea the hour he calls you home. Only he has ordained your days and not one of them will pass. He will not have more than that. And so that is, God, he withholds this information so we walk by faith. God wants us to walk by faith. He's most glorified by that and it's good for us to walk by faith, friends. Not by sight. Oh, there'll be a day when we walk by sight, not faith, because he'll be right there. But God has done this. One other thought about that is we'll never experience the purifying hope of his return. First John chapter three, John would have been here at this Olivet Discourse, says this, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared yet as what we will be, right? We don't know when it's gonna happen and we're not quite sure what that's gonna look like. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, free from the tanglements of sin, right? Because we will see him just as he is. And then it says this, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, Christ, purifies himself. There's a purifying aspect that our hope is in that Christ is going to return. That these things are future events, that he is going to come. He's going to come and gather his bride and bring us to be there. There's a purifying hope to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, finally, verse 33, in this point, he says, take heed the first time, fourth time, take heed, take heed, take heed. He's warning these people who will go through this generation Last, and we'll do this briefly, number five, a lesson on alertness. Right at the end of this, he he dumps in kind of a parable in a way. It reads this way. 
is like a man away on a journey who leaves who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge assigned to each of each one his task also commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert therefore be on alert for you do not know when the master of the house is coming whether it is evening or at midnight or whether the rooster crows or in the morning in case he should suddenly um, uh, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep then he says this and what i say to you i say to all. Isn't that interesting? Though this whole text looks forward to a future group of elect generation, here he pulls in, be on alert. Now real quickly, this last section is is only found in Mark, and it's a lesson to reinforce this alert attitude. And remember, these disciples are sitting on top of this mountain, listening to this discourse and going, I hope I beat John to sit on his right. All this is going over their head at this point. It isn't until they're given the, the spirit after the resurrection, you know, they're breathed on and they receive the spirit in the church's birth, do they start understanding what this is all about. But nonetheless, he is telling them to be on alert. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? The, the absent homeowner is who? Has to be the son of man, right? He's gone. Where'd he go? We went back to heaven. That's Acts 1, right? He goes there and he's leaving people in charge of his house. And each one of them he gives a certain task to, to carry it out. And isn't it interesting, he gives a real strong task to the doorkeeper. And there's a lot of people make out a lot of this and who these people are. I don't know who they are. And I think this is a future generation. And so he's really focusing on this doorkeeper to be alert. He's kind of on the outer gate, making sure that nobody comes in. Remember, there's Antichrist, and they, they will teach they'll teach in such a way, even if possible, to deceive the elect. So this is strong language to be on alert. And then he says, look, are you taking care of the four watches of night? This could happen at evening, this could happen at midnight, this could happen when the rooster crows, and if you ever have a rooster, they never crow when it's light. They crow about two hours before it. Um, and then in morning, so he's talking about this, this coming at night, this can come upon you. And so what he's saying, look, the world lies in darkness at nighttime. We're in the nighttime as far as the world is concerned. But this master is coming back Luke said it this way, be on guard so that your heart will not weigh you down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth but keep on alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And so he he winds us up with saying to these future generation of his elect, saying, be on alert, stay alert. But then the last verse, look at verse 37, so that we don't sit back and say, well, this isn't for me. He says, I say to all of you, be on alert. Let me, let me wrap this up this way. If you don't know the gospel, if the gospel hasn't penetrated your heart, where it affects your marriage, your raising children, the way you perform in the job, if the gospel has not pierced you in a sense, alertness is very difficult. Because the problems of this world are greater to you than the gospel. The problems of a struggling marriage, the problems of struggling financially, the problems of health problems become so overwhelmed you forget to be on alert. And guess who, during this age that we're in right now, is seeking to devour you? Satan. The Bible says that. He prowls around. 
And so the Bible warns us not only for these coming saints here, but here he warns that all of us are to be on alert. Look, the, the flesh is warring against your soul. We looked at that in 1 Peter. The flesh is warring against your soul, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. It's warring against your soul. My flesh, it wakes up before I do in the mornings, it seems. And it starts to think about all the problems I have in life and how am I going to get all this accomplished. And my flesh is raging at times. And the only way to capture that is to be in the Spirit of God, to submit to the Spirit of God, which is to know his word and to know his will. There's a battle there. Do not battle, brothers and sisters. I hope I'm not the only one in this room that says there's a battle going on for my heart at times. And the only way I fight this is I need to be alert. I need to be alert that, that, that God is watching over me. He's given me everything I need in this life and godliness. And I need to hold to those things. And if you don't know the gospel, that, that God comes and gives filthy, rotten sinners, sinners that d- deserve Eternal death gives them grace and mercy and a place in heaven with him forever. You'll never, you'll never be on alert. The world's too powerful. Your flesh is too powerful. And so we preach the gospel to ourselves day in and day out. And my fear of this end time teaching as I went through it and I told the elders, pray for our church. I don't want them to get lost in the end times and get all, what's this? And I believe this and matching this up. I'm pretty sure we got charts on the, on the wall. I don't want you to get lost in that. I want you to be alert. I want to be alert. I want to watch and look for my Lord. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. If you don't hold this in this area, you can't really believe in the imminent return of Christ because all this stuff has to take place before he comes to get you. But all through the Bible, the Bible talks about the imminent return of Christ. The apostles use that idea. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Because they understood this was talking about a future generation. And so we believe in the imminent return of Christ. He could come any day. Are you ready? Is the house in order? Did he leave you to watch the door? Did he leave you to take care of his stuff? Are you watching over his people? What has God left you to do and what are you doing with it? Because the master's coming. This is the gospel. He died for you. He empowers us to live for him. And so like me, I pray you repent. I repent from sin this week. And I pray you do repent. And, and that keeps us alert so that we're not taken. Oh, Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for giving us the strength to get through this passage. Lord, I know that there's good men that have different views. And I, I'm grateful for many of them, Lord. Lord, but it seems evident to me that you have a plan for your church. And then you want to show your grace in such a global, universal way that you're going to come rescue this group. On, on death's final door, you're going to rescue them and show mercy and grace to those who don't deserve it, just like you did with us. And so, Lord, I am so grateful for your love. Help us not be complacent. If we do believe that the church will be raptured out, help us not be complacent and just sit back and wait. But we are to be like this parable. We have been given a job. We're to be alert. We're to be watching. We're to be ready. Every one of us have some level of stewardship, some role, Lord. We can't be in the church and not be a hand or an arm or a leg or an eye or something, Lord. We're to be part of an active body of Christ that's loving and caring for one another and and hurting and weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Lord, there's an activity, there's an active aspect of this, Lord. Lord, we can only do this when we're reminded of the gospel. 
We only can do this, Lord, we're reminded that we have something we do not deserve. We have grace. We have mercy. We've been saved from eternal damnation. Oh, Lord, let us not forget these truths. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.